Hi, you're listening to an older episode. The podcast is now called Travel Writing World. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to All Over the Place, a podcast on travel, culture, and the creative life. Today's episode brings us to Guanajuato, where Tim Lefeld speaks with us about travel writing, how the internet has changed the travel writing landscape, and traveling on the cheap. Tim has written for print and digital publications like Budget Travel, MSNBC, and the Boston Globe, to name a few. He has recently published a new edition of his book, The World's Cheapest Destinations, which we discuss towards the end of the conversation. So now, here is Tim Leffel. I'm speaking with Tim Leffel author of five books on travel and living abroad and runs a few travel-related websites. He has a new edition of his book, The World's Cheapest Travel Destinations, fifth edition, I believe, which will be out uh, in the next couple of days, I believe. Uh, So, well, Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. And yes, by the time this airs, it will be widely available. So the publication date is... The first? Officially the first, yes. But okay. these things never happen exactly on schedule. But uh, <laughs> the Kindle version's out already, and the others should be rolling out here any day now. Okay, so by the time this comes out uh, sometime in September, uh, you should be able to find that. Well, before we um, – I'd like to talk about that book, but before we uh, jump into that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, like you know, who you are and what do you do, what, what are you known for? Sure. Well, I studied music and business in college and went on to work for RCA Records for seven years. So I was uh, in an office with a regular job and I met a girl in New York City who said she wanted to go traveling after we were already going out for a while. And um, it took a while for me to unwind some things. But uh, then we eventually went backpacking around the world. And I was looking for something to do to make some money, basically. So I started travel writing. We also taught English in a couple different countries. But we ended up backpacking around the world for three years, uh, not continuously, but three years out of four. And uh, I started getting some articles published. And back then, this was the print days and slide film and all that. So it wasn't as easy as it is now. But that was my start. And then I stayed part-time for a really long time until basically the internet made it much easier to control your own destiny and publish your own websites and blogs. So then I went full-time about 13 years ago, and that's what I've been doing ever since. Mm. And when you were backpacking um, around the world um, and you were doing travel writing, uh, how did you kind of break into that? Was that, did you have to pitch articles back then or did you send them on spec? How did that work? A little bit of both, but yeah, mostly pitching, which um, it was just such a pain. It's hard to believe it was even this archaic, but you had to send a letter with a self-addressed stamped envelope (laughs) inside for the editor to respond to you, which as you can imagine, if you're overseas, is rather difficult. You got to get the mail somewhere. So I tried to pitch a lot before we left and then uh, a little bit on the road. But I also connected with this company that um, did hotel reviews for a travel agency publication. And so I would go into, I think Turkey was the first one I did. So I would go into Turkey and review the top 70 hotels in the country. So not just Istanbul, but lots of other places too. And so I, uh, when I got that kind of gig, it was kind of good because it didn't pay that much per hotel, but it was a volume kind of thing where you were, you were doing so many of them that it added up to something. And on a backpacker budget, it added up to a good bit. Plus we often got some uh, comped hotel stays, uh, you know, places nice. that knew about this publication would invite us to stay. And so we were going from these crappy $5 a night guest houses into, you know, the Hilton in Ankara in <laughs> Turkey. And that felt like paradise. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So obviously, 
you know, the internet age has made things a lot easier in terms of communicate, you know, communications, not having to send, you know, self-addressed stamped envelopes and, you know, having to wait for replies. But um, how else has kind of the internet or the web revolutionized the way in which um, nomads and travelers can make a living with their writing? Well, there are a lot more opportunities now because of the digital age. Uh, first of all, you don't have to wait for a reply from anybody. You can just start a blog, and uh, it's not going to happen quickly, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But you can sort of find your own voice, you know, pick your own subject, control your own destiny, all of those kinds of things, and eventually make good money at it more than you would as a freelancer. But you got to be willing to put in the time and the effort to get there. Uh, the other thing is there are a lot more outlets to publish in than there used to be. I mean, exponentially more because there are a lot of uh, corporate blogs. There are a lot of online magazines. There are a lot of uh, overseas sites that are easier to write for than an overseas magazine would have been. And so even if you're just a freelancer, you can still make decent money and get steady business by you know working these other outlets and even – you know, tourism boards hire people to write things for them. So, uh, I just think there's more, uh, there's more breadth to the possibilities out there. Now they don't pay the way, um, the New York times used to pay in the good old days or, you know, travel and leisure or whoever, where they were paying $2 a word and they still do that for features, but there's not as many features (laughs) as there used to be. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, maybe you don't get paid as much per piece, but there's a lot way, a lot more ways to spin one trip into a dozen articles and get paid for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right here in front of my, um, in front of my computer on my desk, I have a copy of Condé Nast Traveler. I mean, I don't know about you, but it seems that those magazines are getting thinner and thinner <laughs> as the years yeah. years go by. And so, like, apart from that, I guess, like, the romantic notion of travel writer getting um, featured pieces in, in print publications, would, I, I guess, would blogging and, you know, those online outlets typically be the entry point for someone who's looking to get into travel writing? Is that usually the the starting point? Yeah, I would say if you're starting out, try to get published wherever you can and don't worry so much about what you're getting paid because you need the the clips. They still call them clips, (laughs) even though they're not physical, but you need, um, you need some places where you were published to show other editors. And also if you have a blog, you get a link back to your site a lot of times, either in the bio or in the text of the article. So that helps your own site as well. So the freelancing these days is sort of a a double, a double bonus. Um, if you have a site of your own that you want to link back to. So there are a lot of sites out there that don't pay very much. Um, you know, maybe you'll only make 25 bucks for doing an article, but again, it's worth it to take what you can in the beginning. And then it won't take you long to work up to getting a hundred, $200, you know, and up per article, uh, if you're good, if you're writing something that people want to read. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I guess the, the strategy in, in that sense would be to uh, accumulate clips and to build your resume on one hand. And on the other hand is to hopefully get some links back to your portfolio site to or your your blog site to, to attract more more attention and to have the site rank higher is that kind of the yes yes because first of all you hope some readers will follow that link and come read your own site but also yeah the way google and bing work is that's sort of an upvote every time someone uh, links to you and that helps your ranking over time because if nobody's linking to your site google thinks you don't have any authority whereas if you've got 100 people linking to your site then they think okay this must be for real mm-hmm. <laughs> and they just we say they it's not really humans it's algorithms and bots doing all this but that's how they determine which sites are uh, worth putting in their rankings and how far up they should be mm. It's not the only factor, but it's still the biggest. Yeah. Hmm. You know, I'm thinking about the internet and how, I guess, how it revolutionized the ways in which, you know, people can travel and make a living with their, with their writing. And so on one hand, the internet's kind of seen as this, this good thing, a tool to enable that kind of lifestyle. 
But on the other hand, you know, critics will say that the internet has, in some ways, you know, dumbed down the 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 writing space. Well, I I don't know if I'm making any sense, but I remember when I was younger, you know, pre-internet days, you know, the types of travel writing I would read were the articles in in kind of National Geographic and you know these these books, you know, these physical books where we'd have these long kind of interesting narratives about exploration and discovery. And now it seems like there's a proliferation of kind of travel writing online that kind of strays from from that old school spin on it. So what do you think about travel writing and the impact that the internet has has done to travel writing? There is really just a bigger volume of everything. So you could still find those well-crafted articles that are 4,000 words. You can still find those great narrative books out there, but they've been joined by you know hundreds of thousands of other articles that are maybe not so hot. But basically what's happened is the there's been a removal of the gatekeepers and there's just less of a funnel than there used to be. Mm-hmm. So it's this, you see the same thing in the book world or even in the podcasting world, you know, if anybody can do it and the cost of entry is very low, then what's going to prevent people from doing it? So the number of books that have been published, for example, is, you know, exponentially higher than it was before the Kindle came along. Um, and is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, you know, there's going to be a lot more junk, of course, because there's a lot more volume. But it's also enabled a lot of authors to break through that just basically kept getting passed on by the gatekeepers, by the traditional publishers. And then they went on to sell millions of copies. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the gatekeepers aren't always right. Right. <laughs> but also in those magazines, when they were thicker, and on that point, I've, I found an old one in my gar- my mother-in-law's garage, an old travel and leisure that was from 2001. And and yeah, it's three times as thick as a current edition. Uh, but they used to be filled with service articles too, and they still are. I mean, it's probably mm-hmm. the same proportion. But there was always the front of the book, which was what the publishing people called um, all those articles in the first half of the magazine. Mm-hmm. And those are pretty much all service-oriented, or you could even say fluff at some point. It's just like what celebrities pack in their uh, suitcase, you know, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Uh, Whatever's going to help them with their newsstand sales. And then you get a few features that are longer and more in-depth and whatever. But um, it's the the volume-wise, it's the short and snappy articles that we're always making up the the bulk of it. And listicles. Listicles are not a new thing. (laughs) They've been around as long as uh, articles have. (laughs) Yeah, I guess I'm I'm romanticizing, you know, travel travel narrative and travel writing. Um, but I guess you're right, you know, just flipping through the the front matter of or the front pages of of any travel magazine, for example, and there's you know what to do in Orlando, you know, when you when you pass through, yep. or the best restaurants in this neighborhood or that neighborhood. So, because there are two purposes people read those magazines. One is just to sort of do armchair travel, just to sort of dream, which is also the same function that Instagram plays these days. Mm-hmm. And then there's the practical side. You know, I'm I'm actually going to Orlando, so I'm going to read this article because I'm looking for advice. And so they're more likely to read uh, top 10 restaurants in Orlando than they are to read some 4,000-word piece about um, alligators and you know swamps mm-hmm. and whatever. I don't know. And probably – probably rightly so right it's uh, it's a different beast to write those longer pieces it requires a different a different um uh i guess set of skills or a different approach right it's a different type of of travel writing so how would you summarize the the major areas of travel writing yeah i think most of it breaks down between service and narrative basically uh you're either giving people advice and telling them what to do, or you're telling them a story. Um, and maybe it's not a story in the traditional sense of, you know, uh, the hero's quest or whatever, but, you know, some kind of narrative thread runs through the whole thing to tie mm-hmm. it together. And uh, I used to think the second one was pretty tough to get an audience for on the internet, and it's still much tougher than service pieces. I run a site called Perceptive Travel, perceptivetravel.com, which has been around since 2006. 
And I mostly started it um, thinking it was not going to make much money. I started it because these magazines were folding right and left, and I wanted um, there to be an outlet out there for narrative stories. So we've always published things that are around 2,000 words or more. But, I mean, I would love to say that site gets loads and loads of traffic, but it doesn't, and it probably never will. Um, and there have not been a whole lot of other ones out there like it. There's World Hum and Roads and Kingdoms and a few others. But I think people read on the Internet differently than they read in a magazine or definitely differently than they read a book. And it's just a matter of how they devote their attention to it. And I think on the Internet, we're sort of used to hopping around like a squirrel and <laughs> not having a very long attention span. The tablet sort of helps. You know, people are reading something on there. I think they're a little more patient because maybe it feels like a book. But um, it's on their phone. It's it's hard to imagine. I've seen people reading a whole book on their phone, but um, I can't imagine. <laughs> but uh, so there is a challenge there. And then um, there's also different levels of service writing. Some of them are just straight listicles or do this, do that. And then there are others that are more about uh, here's the trip I took and all the things I saw. And that's kind of the cliche about the bloggers out there that uh, are not very good writers. They're just telling you what they did every day. Mm -hmm. And there is a fair bit of that out there. But sometimes that could be useful. You know, people follow along and they actually get kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, a thrill by seeing what this other person's doing, this exciting life they're having while mm -hmm. the reader is sitting in their cubicle. Right. Well, that's the, the origin, maybe, the origin of the blog is for the, the day to day, the, kind of right. journal in the the proper sense of that of that word. So uh, I don't know, do you think then the um the domain for long form travel narratives is is increasingly print books or or do you is there is there a space for it online? Yeah, there's a space for it, but it's just never going to have the kind of audience that BuzzFeed's going to have for instance mm -hmm. or even a a service oriented blog. I mean, the one I have that gets the most traffic is my cheapest destinations blog, which I initially just started to promote the book way back when, when it first, the first edition came out and then it evolved into something real and it gets really good traffic, but it's all about how to take a cheaper vacation, how to get more for your money and how to get the best value, which places are the, the best deal. And there's just a bigger audience for that than there is for people that want to read a travel story. Uh, mm -hmm. People want to get advice for their own trip more than they want to read about someone else's trip is my impression. <laughs> I could be wrong, but mm -hmm. it seems that way from the, the traffic patterns. But books have a different expectation. And so I've actually gotten articles before pitched to me for perceptive travel where I've said, um, you know, this would be a great book chapter, but it's just not going to work online because it couldn't be illustrated. You couldn't put photos with it. And that's another thing. If we're reading something online and we see a wall of text, we hit the back button or <laughs> go to something right. else because – People are just expecting to be wowed a little more now with some some kind of uh, visual stimulation. So when you say the books, there's a different expectation. Do you think it's more the expectation is that for online articles, uh, there needs to be kind of that, that visual element to, to retain the attention? Or are, um, when you say there's a different expectation for books, do you mean that there's kind of a larger kind of narrative arc and it's more complicated? Like, what do you mean by that? Yeah, a little of both. When you read a book, you're not expecting to see any pictures unless it's a photo book or something, a coffee table book. So you're sort of forming those images in your mind instead. But for better or for worse, we've gotten to a point on the internet where you expect every story, even a business story, to have some kind of illustration with it, some kind of picture or five pictures or 10 pictures and maybe a infographic or something or a video mm -hmm. as well. Uh, it's more of a multimedia expectation, I think. And there's a whole lot of other weird little things that come in there, like uh, sentences are much shorter on the Internet. Paragraphs are shorter. 
Um, and there's a few different reasons for that, but one of them is definitely attention span. People expect things in more bite-sized chunks. Whereas when you read a book, you're sort of settling in, you're reading in bed or sitting on a sofa or something. And you just expect when you pick it up that you're going to be reading 20, 30 pages at a time. It's a lot different. Um, I think people will read people something that's the equivalent of 20 or 30 pages in a book online if it's going to solve their problem. I heard one blogger say one time, uh, people will definitely read a 10,000 word article about how to fix their back problems if they have a back problem and they don't care if there's any photos on there or anything. Mm. They're going to read 10,000 words of text, but you've got to really have a problem you want solved before you're going to read that much online is, is the way it seems to go. Mm. So maybe the internet crowd or audience is um, searching for topics uh, that are more helpful and I guess utilitarian in, in nature. Whereas, you know, books are, um, I guess you could say apart from the service oriented books, um, they appeal to a different, different crowd, someone who's interested in story and things more literary. I think so. And I know you had Pico Iyer on earlier and he's one of those people that's been doing those for 20 years or more. And, I think there's a certain expectation you go buy a book like that or or you check it out from the library because you want to get immersed in a place or mm-hmm. a destination uh, or you just really like that writer's style and you want to uh you know read nice prose on a page. <laughs> um it's yeah it's, it's very different than when you're just flipping around the internet I think mm-hmm. for better or for worse and and again there's always exceptions to the rule and and not everybody is uh not everybody is like a squirrel when they're reading. Some people really settle in and read long articles online, but I just think uh, in general, it's a different expectation. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, And so being the, the editor of perceptive travel, the the kind of long form uh, narrative site that you have, and also kind of an editor or an owner, owner of um, kind of more service oriented, websites you have your your hands and or your feet in both sides of the door there right and so as the editor of perceptive travel like what is it that you're you're looking for in, in terms of an article like what sets apart a good article from uh, a bad one in your opinion well it does have to have some kind of narrative thread it i always say we're the opposite of a triple a magazine <laughs> we're not trying to uh get you to travel to a certain destination um we don't uh do destination roundups or you know listicles or anything like that we're trying to tell a good story whether that's uh you know something uh, bad that happened along the way and makes an interesting or funny story or it's just um why did you end up there? What was what was it about that place that held your attention and what happened to you while you were there? It should have some kind of a beginning and middle and end to it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's not completely obvious, but you know, there's got to be some kind of uh, transformation or some kind of journey where uh, it, it really lies, it rises up to being literary in some sense, not just uh, informational. So that's a really kind of squirrely answer. It's not real um, concrete, but I try to lay it out in the guidelines, what we're looking for. And I always say, go read what's already been published, which Mm -hmm. every editor tells you and so many people don't listen to. But uh, I I think there's a certain feel to uh, most of our articles where you know, when you start this thing, something interesting is going to happen and you're going to be taken on some kind of a journey. And that's what we're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. And so perceptive travel has um, a model where there are issues. Is that is that right? Yes, we, we publish it like a magazine. So there is a blog attached to it, too, a perceptive travel blog that has a couple posts a week. And that's a different animal. Those are shorter pieces and they're um, we, we just try to be kind of quirky and different with that. So we're focusing on maybe destinations that haven't been covered to death or finding a unique angle or whatever. But on the magazine side, yeah, we publish it once a month, uh, on the first and there's four narrative articles and book, three book reviews. So we review three books every time. Uh, 
And the, again, that's almost a service thing. There's not many places that review books anymore <laughs> that mm -hmm. people are looking at. So we're trying to shine a light on some book travel books worth checking out. And um, yeah, and everyone who's a contributor is a book author. So that kind of makes us unique too. I sort of did that as a marketing ploy to sort of set the site apart. But I also had this feeling that, <laughs> well, if someone's a book author, they are they're able to finish a project and hand it in on time. You know, that's kind of a, um, a simple thing, but uh, they'll make their deadlines and they'll actually complete it. And also you figure book followers, book authors have somewhat of a following and that's always nice. And the last one was I knew that would keep the number of queries down, which is a very practical right. reason. I don't get hundreds of queries a week from people because the ones uh, – that don't have a book out, I could reject those out of hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, you just mentioned, um, something about, you know, trying to find articles that cover topics that haven't been covered to death. Right. So, you know, with the, I guess really the explosion of travel writing online, um, you know, thanks to, thanks to the internet and thanks to online outlets and blogs and things like, it, there's a struggle to keep things new and keep things interesting and keep things fresh. So, you know, it, as we're moving forward with, you know, this ex internet exper experiment, like where do you see travel writing going in the next decade? I guess, wh wh where is it going to go? I think it's going to keep uh, expanding. You're going to have more people writing about it. Uh, there will reach a point where, we've just got too many outlets out there and you're not going to continue with a blog if you're only getting 20 readers a month. And so there's sort of a winnowing out there. I think a, a Darwinistic survival of the fittest, I guess. So it's not infinite. The number of uh, travel blogs and travel outlets you can have out there. Uh, I think we will probably see people specializing in smaller and smaller niches or smaller destinations uh, but you're still always going to have people writing about Paris and New York and London because those are the most popular spots. And so if you're just going for the most eyeballs, I think you're still going to have people writing about those places and hopefully finding some new angles that haven't been covered to death because um, there's only so many uh, – top 10 whatever articles you can read about London and <laughs> there's only so many more we need. But, uh, yeah, the, this is the internet is the whole long tail phenomenon personified. You got, you know, you've got blogs that can focus on very narrow areas and still build a tribe. Mm -hmm. And that's what I advise people to do a lot. I mean, there are people that are writing just about travel in Pennsylvania, for instance, getting, 200, 250,000 readers a month. So you can still have a sizable audience by going really narrow if you if you are the, the top of the heap, if you're the king of the mountain. Um, but there are also people writing about, uh, you know, kayak fishing, for example, or windsurfing and um, kite surfing, whatever, uh, backcountry skiing. You know, there's a lot of uh, – focus areas that people can kind of grab and call their own. So I think you'll continue seeing an, an expansion in those areas, but I don't know that the writing itself is going to change that much. I mean, what people just generally settle on what's working over time, they look at their stats and they see what's getting the most traffic. And of course you're going to do more articles like that if it's what your audience wants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And lately I've been uh, seeing more and more travel um, articles service-oriented articles um, and informational journalistic type articles related to travel, but um, in the kind of the age of being woke, right, a lot of um, articles dealing with ethical concerns surrounding travel and over-tourism, um, which have yielded, you know, these fascinated, fascinating new um, opinions and voices in, in the travel space. So I'm, I'm kind of very eager to see what comes out of, of that trend. Um, yeah, one huge advantage we've gotten, sorry to break in, but mm -hmm. uh, one big advantage of the internet is uh, bloggers don't have to worry too much about pissing off their advertisers, so they mm -hmm. can be much more truthful, I think. I mean, you still have sponsored posts and things like that. People are ambassadors, so they're going to say great things about whoever's sponsoring them. But in, you know, in the magazine world, 
you've got all these ads from cruise lines spas and five-star hotels so you're never ever going to see anything bad about a hotel in travel and leisure for instance um i mean i've been reading those magazines for 20 years i don't think i've ever seen a negative hotel review even a brief mention of the hot water not working is pretty rare you know (laughs) even if the person had a disastrous stay they're not going to say anything bad but i think on the internet people could be a lot more truthful and they can tackle these topics you're talking about like with sustainability and over tourism and um, depletion of resources and exploitation of locals and things like that magazines would not touch that stuff with a 10-foot pole 20 years ago because they did not want to put anything negative in and they didn't want to again anger any of their advertisers which could be a destination they don't want to say anything bad about you know locals being exploited in hawaii just to pick an example um because hawaii is one of their biggest advertisers right so um, I think you get a little more truthfulness online and um, the print people will say, oh, no, you know, bloggers will take these sponsored trips or go on press trips and whatever. Well, so so do they now. I mean, the magazines have gotten to a point where they're not any more holy <laughs> in that regard. So um, they don't really have a leg to stand on in that argument anymore. And they could say, oh, we have editorial standards and whatever, but not really. It's just – uh, a form of money laundering. They're going to write about whoever's advertising. They will say there's a wall between the two, but really their whole editorial schedule is determined by the advertising department, not by the editorial department. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's so true. There's this uh, truthfulness and honesty that you get in the blogos- blogosphere as opposed to in the glossies. Um, you're never going to see in, I don't know, and for Norwegian, uh, an article about carbon emissions and, (laughs) you know, purchasing (laughs) carbon offsets. But, you know, you will see a lot of people uh, raising, raising hell about that on online and and right, rightfully so. Um, But it's interesting, kind of this, you know, this, the space that the travel writers online take up. It's an important one. And we like to criticize them. uh, But they're, they're doing things that kind of the old school and by the old school i mean kind of the old media uh, wouldn't touch because of moneyed interest right right yeah i mean you'll see a lot of things from bloggers about uh, shady practices in the industry and pollution and things like that that you'll just not you're not going to read in print usually mm-hmm. <laughs> unless it's some investigative report by a newspaper you you recently revised your your book, World's Cheapest Destinations, it's fifth edition. Why would anyone be interested in traveling to cheap destinations instead of, uh, I guess, the more expensive, popular ones? Or is there a correlation between popular destinations and costs? Uh, there's a little bit of a correlation, but it, it's certainly not a perfect one because Thailand is super popular and it's also quite cheap. Uh, but I think when you look at countries that are that are struggling the most with over tourism, they tend to be the richest ones, you know, like uh, Holland and Italy and uh, France, the ones that get the most people um, are often the greatest hits of travel and those are are not the cheapest ones but there is a correlation when you get further down the list Um, like the places i feature in europe are what would be called eastern europe in the old days the iron curtain countries and also the balkans so uh, albania montenegro bosnia and those places just get a teeny tiny fraction of what even just paris or london gets uh the whole country you know bulgaria probably gets in a year what uh what paris gets in a week so it's um a whole different animal so it is a whole lot less crowded in a lot of those countries and um some of it's somewhat true in latin america and asia but again you know you've got You've got places like Thailand that are super popular. And in Indonesia, the country itself is not that crowded with tourists, but Bali certainly is. So a lot of these countries have pockets of over-tourism. Same with uh, Machu Picchu and and Cusco and Peru. But, man, I just went to the Amazonas region of Peru a few months ago up in the north. And we were touring this uh, set of ruins called Quelop that's massive. It's it's 
bigger than Machu Picchu. And maybe we saw six or eight other people there mm-hmm. the whole time we were touring yeah. around. And there's even this really nice cable car they built that goes up to it that probably cost $20 million or something for them to build. So they're expecting more people. But my point is there are other places you can go in Peru where there's hardly anyone around and it's a pretty big country with a lot to see. So, uh, that's one of the solutions for over tourism. Just, you know, don't go where everybody else is going. But uh, anyway, back to your question. I think most of the countries featured in here are not super popular. Um, although Thailand and Mexico are probably in the top 10 and um, worldwide as far as number of visitors. But Mexico is just partly because it's so close to the U.S. and Canada and they've got such great air connections. So, um you know, a lot of that is just a matter of location. Thailand has benefited from all the Chinese travelers taking off. It's pretty easy and quick for them to get there. So sometimes you have some proximity factors contributing to the um, volume of visitors they're getting. So um, what was your methodology in terms of selecting the countries? Was it purely financial? Did you have a threshold or how did that work? Yeah, it's, uh, well, two factors. Um is it cheap enough <laughs> and is there a decent infrastructure for tourists? Are there reasons to go there? You know, is, are there things to see? Can you get around pretty easily? So, for example, when I first put out this book in 2002, the very first edition, I did not have Cambodia in there because at the time it took, you know, all day to get from one city to the other, even if they were only um, 200 kilometers apart because the roads were so horrible that it was just impossible to get around and hardly anyone was going there because there was threat of a coup and, you know, always some infighting political instability. So I didn't put it in there, but now of course it's a super popular place. Angkor Wat's another uh, over tourism destination, but, uh, a lot more backpackers are going there all the time too. So, uh, yeah, the uh, criteria is basically can one person uh, get around on roughly $50 a day or less um, in reasonable comfort or for a couple, um, $80 to $100 a day. And f- so that's still a pretty big budget in a lot of places. I mean, if you were touring around India on that amount, you would be, you know, middle, you'd be mid-range. <laughs> you'd be uh, staying at nicer hotels and taking first-class trains and whatever. But um, in a lot of countries, uh, you know, that'll be a backpacker budget. So that's a rather arbitrary number. But most of the places in the book, you a single traveler would spend between 25 and $50 a day if traveling around as a budget traveler. And when you add that up for a month, it's definitely far, far less than you're spending just existing at home. For a lot of people, that's less than they're spending just on their rent. So um, that kind of puts it in perspective if you do the math. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, the first one was uh, published, I guess you you just said 2002. So here we are uh, 17 years later. Uh, What has has changed uh, since, since the publication of the first edition? So a few things have changed. A lot more people are traveling, period, Um, especially Americans. Like when I first started backpacking around the world and I was in Asia, in the Middle East, I did not meet hardly any Americans. I mean, there were a few here and there, but uh, it was just not the thing to do back then culturally. You know, people, because there was no example of it, because most people didn't know anyone who had done it, it just seemed like a freakish, weird thing. And maybe you were a slouch, you were lazy, you know, you were not... Uh, career oriented, you know, you were just doing this because you couldn't get a job, (laughs) whatever. Those were the assumptions, you know, Mm. whereas Europeans and Australians especially have always been taking off on these long jaunts for, you know, maybe it's six or eight weeks, maybe it's not a year around the world, but they were used to taking these long trips, whereas Americans uh, are so devoid of proper vacation time that uh, taking a long journey like that was just kind of unheard of. But now you've got the ability to work from anywhere if you're a, if you've got some kind of nomadic job or you know laptop job, location independent job, whatever, or it's easier to run your own business from the road. So I think a lot more people are out there on the road. So that's good and bad. I mean, you've got um, 
more money pouring into these communities, but you also have more of a strain, as we've talked about on, on the most popular places. Uh, the other thing has changed is the infrastructure has gotten a lot better around the world. Um, you can get from point A to point B a lot easier, and you can set up things in advance a lot easier now. And that's not necessarily a good thing, but um, if you wanted to, you could set up a whole year of accommodations before you even left, mm -hmm. um, which is crazy to think of um, back in the day before the internet when I first started traveling you you just showed up in a place and looked around and found where you were going to stay and you didn't think twice about it that was just what you did so um, you know all those things have changed but also airfares have gotten cheaper there's a lot more you know budget airlines out there the, a lot of the routes have gotten more competitive and even flying across an ocean has gotten cheaper than it used to be it uh, there's just a lot more flight deals out there, especially if you're not going in high season. So you can get to your starting point for, uh, say, you're going to start in Bangkok. You can get there a whole lot cheaper than you could, um, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So it's gotten more reasonable to get around and a lot easier to get around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and each uh, in, in this in this book, the world's cheapest destinations. You have, you know, um, kind of countries listed and then you have uh sections on accommodation food and drink and transportation and here um in these sections you have um well you know information about the average prices of meals and uh in restaurants and on the street and in hotels and i don't see too much of um you making concrete uh recommendations in terms of places like accommodations and places to eat. So how how did you go about rounding up the cost information and averaging that out? Yeah, so a little of that's based on personal experience and, and reading other bloggers' articles and things like that. But also these days you can find pretty reliable information on, on the cost of accommodations just on the booking sites. Uh, you can see what hostels, what the range is for hostels and what the range is for a two-star hotel, for instance, because I do cover what it's going to be like for mid-range travelers too. Maybe people that would be called flash packers, I guess, <laughs> people that have a little more cash or maybe they're going for a shorter time. Uh, and so I just did a, a lot of, for the updates especially, I just do a lot of um, searching around on, on bookie.com and the hostel sites and Agoda for Asia, uh, is probably the most comprehensive booking site there and just see what the averages are looking like. I do, I pick a few different dates throughout the year and just kind of get an idea. And so I do have mostly ranges in this book because I'm not going to tell you, you are for sure going to find an $8 hotel in Ho Chi Minh city. Um, because you know, exchange rates change and, places close and whatever. So, um, but in general, you're going to find that the ranges are pretty accurate in this book to give you a general idea of what you're going to spend per day. And that's what I'm just trying to do. Most of my readers, um, from the survey kind of information I've done and just comments on my blog, I think most of the people that buy this book are getting ready to set out on a long journey and they want to put together an itinerary that makes sense for their budget. So, uh, it's a lot easier to do that now than it used to be, but also you just want some general guidance on, uh, well, okay, if I spend a month in Europe, where can I stretch this budget I have that's going to last me for a whole month? And you're going to quickly find out it's not Norway, right. <laughs> but uh, it, might, it might be the Czech Republic and Hungary, you know, so, uh, and maybe you spend uh, a couple of days in one of those bucket list destinations in the more expensive spots, but you spend the bulk of your time in places where your money's going to go a lot further. Do you think the, the experience of travel, um, is different or I, I don't want to say better, but is there something, um, that stands out in the less visited places and in the cheaper places? Is there something? I just, I just think you have a lot more fun. I'm, I'm still when I'm on my own dime, I'm still going to mostly cheap places because mm -hmm. I want to be able to do whatever I want without having to worry about, um, oh, no, do we have the money for this or not? So uh, just to give an example, if you go to somewhere like Paris, you can 
easily spend more than $20 in a museum. Uh, it's the same in, you know, Rome or wherever. But if you, if you go to most of the countries in this book, it's hard to spend more than $4 to go to anything. And when you're only spending, you know, $10 for your three course meal instead of a hundred dollars, then you just have a lot more fun. I think you enjoy it more. And we are fortunate to live in a first world country where we're earning uh, a currency that's worth a lot in a lot of other places. This is not just true for Americans. It's true for Brits and Europeans and Australians. So, you know, if you're in a country where you've been earning good wages and then you go to a country where the average wage is one fifth of what it is where you live, then you're just going to naturally have a lot more spending power and you're sort of like in the elite. <laughs> You've sort of moved up in the, uh, in the class structure and moved up in the riches structure mm -hmm. to suddenly being on the top of the heap instead of at the bottom. Right. Right. Now I was reading um, an article about, you know, about ethical concerns while traveling and, um, the the article's main point is that if you do come from a country in which you know you make a lot of money and you're somewhat privileged and you're traveling to a less wealthy country right consider um spending some of your tourist dollars in local areas so um not just local areas but if you're staying at a hotel you know choose a, a local hotel because you know that money is staying with the local people Whereas if you travel to, um, I don't know, a resort in the Caribbean, you know, most of those resorts are owned by Europeans or, or Americans. So most of that money that you spend at those resorts are kind of going outside um, of, of the country that you're visiting. So it's, the article was saying that it's not, you know, arguably not an ethical thing to do is to stay in, in these luxury resorts um, or these yeah. foreign-owned resorts. So. What are what are your ideas about this in terms of traveling to these cheap destinations? Yeah, you brought up a good point there, Jeremy, and I think it's something that uh, people don't think about enough. Um, how much are you truly supporting the local community? And there have been a few studies that with backpackers, something like 80 or 90 percent of their money actually benefits the community, whereas if you're staying at a all-inclusive resort, it's it's the opposite, you know, maybe 10 or 20% is actually staying in the community. So there's some trickle down there. I mean, of course, you've got local workers in the resort and they're, they're happy to have the job, you know, so there is some money going into the community. I mean, Cancun wouldn't be as populated as it is if there weren't so many jobs there. Um, right. But uh, if you go stay in Valladolid, for instance, which is about two hours from Cancun heading towards Merida, pretty much everything you spend there is going to go into the local community because there are no chain hotels, there are no chain restaurants, <laughs> you know, it's all, it's all um, locally owned businesses. So I think backpackers by their nature tend to be staying in local hotels and, and eating in locally run restaurants because they're on a budget and they're eating where the locals do and they're staying mm -hmm. in inexpensive places, which the inexpensive hotels in general are not part of chains because it's not economically viable for them. So uh, I think it sort of happens automatically if you're a budget traveler, but it's something to think about even if you're not, even if you're just going for a one-week vacation, how can you really put some money into that community? Um, and it, just be conscious of that. You know, when you leave the resort, um, where can you go eat that's actually going to help a family put food on their table? Because this is a lot more valuable than giving to a charity because uh, most people don't want a handout. They want a job. And <laughs> I mean, that's right. true around the world. They want to feel like they're doing something productive. So um, if you can help out uh, by targeting your spending in the right way, then you can make a much bigger difference than if you gave $500 to UNICEF or whatever. Mm -hmm. It seems like yeah, your, your book is, is while it's not kind of solely directed towards kind of the ethical uh, uh, implications of traveling cheaply, it, it tends to recommend to, to, to spend more locally. And so that is definitely, um, definitely a good thing. For sure. And it goes to everything you do when you're there, your souvenir buying too. If you can buy from the maker or only one step away from the maker, then a lot more money is going to, more money is going to stay in the community than if you just buy from some 
tchotchke shop at the airport, you know, right. and half the, <laughs> half the time the stuff you buy there isn't even made locally. It comes from right. China or something. So, yeah. um, Case in yeah, point, if you right. can, uh, just be thinking about, uh, your spending decisions and what effect they have. It, it's everything, transportation, um, you know, souvenirs, uh, where you go out and drink, where you buy your, uh, your soda, whatever. I mean, if you can, direct that money so that it's going into the local community. It's going to help everybody out a lot more. Mm. Yeah. So before we uh, wrap things up, I just uh, want to ask you, so like, you know, what is your cheapest or your favorite cheapest place to, to visit? I know you're, you're in Mexico, you spend some time in Mexico, but so apart from that. (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) I, I live in Mexico actually. Um, I've been back and forth a few times between there and the States, but um, I have a house in Mexico, but I actually just added that country to this current edition as a real chapter. It used to be an honorable mention. And the reason <laughs> for that is uh, the currency has the dollar has gotten stronger and stronger against the peso since I first started going there. And now it's actually cheaper than it was 15 years ago to mm. go travel around Mexico. But back to this over tourism thing, back to the resort thing, if you can get into the interior of Mexico or at least to beaches that aren't filled with high-rise uh, resorts, then you will um, find things to be much, much cheaper than if you uh, take a vacation to Los Cabos. Right. So uh, that's just another point of uh, – another piece of advice. Just stay away from the um, short-term vacation uh, tourist resorts and you'll you'll be a lot better off. But anyway, um, I was in Peru this year. Um, I'm – Sometimes I'm just going places because of um, an assignment or a conference or whatever, so I'm I'm not always going to cheap places all the time. Right now I'm in traveling around Montana, actually, in the USA, which is great because I've never been out here before. But uh, I'm not sure where my um, next cheap jaunt will be, honestly. Uh, i got to go to Europe in, in March, and so I'm probably going to do a bit of traveling around there. But the last few years I've – I've been to some places I hadn't been before that I added to this book because the infrastructure's gotten better. I I added those Balkan countries after traveling around there for um, four or five weeks, and I added Kyrgyzstan, which most people can't spell or find on a map, and <laughs> I couldn't either before I had been there. But uh, it's a really great place to visit. And so um, I've gotten a few of these um, ticked off the last few years. My next one I really like, really want to go to is Georgia. And I think that will make the next edition. I sort of stuck it in as an honorable mention because uh, there's not a ton of information out there and I have not been there yet. But I think by the when I have to update this book again in four or five years, I will hopefully have made it to Georgia mm-hmm. and will add that to my list. The country of, not the right. state. <laughs> Which is also not not so expensive if if you want to go somewhere. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Though, real quick, there's a big uh, urban versus rural divide in every country. So if you go to a small town in the countryside, you're always going to spend less than if you go to the capital city. For sure. Well, um, where can we find you online? So my Cheapest Destinations blog has been around since 2003. It makes me one of the pioneers. It also gives a hint that I'm not the youngest guy in the world. (laughs) But uh, uh, that's where it's just me writing. Um, It's my uh, post twice a week, basically, advice on how to travel well for less. And then I'm the editor of Perceptive Travel and a few other sites. If you ever want to just – find out more about me, you can Google my name. It's Tim Leffel, L-E-F-F-E-L. Thankfully, there are very few other people with that name. So uh, you'll find my portfolio site. You'll find my books on Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. Very good. Well, we'll also put some links uh, in the show notes uh, so people can find you uh, that way as well. So thank you so much for your time and coming on to talk with us about your, your new book and your experience with travel writing. Thanks for having me on, Jeremy. It was good talking with you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of All Over the Place. Don't forget to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media. Please subscribe to our newsletter to receive emails with travel-related news, book recommendations, and resources from around the world. 
Links can be found at allovertheplacepodcast.com. <laughs>